Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. This is the third week of shows dedicated to candidate interviews for the provincial elections for Northumberland Peterborough South to be held on June 2nd. The order is completely random based on when the various campaigns were able to book interviews. The last two candidates for the provincial election are interviewed on today's show. The first will be Joshua Shaloub, the candidate for the New Blue Party. This is the first election for this brand new party. He lives in Hastings. Here is Joshua Shaloub. I'm so pleased to have with me today Joshua Shaloub, the candidate for the New Blue Party of Ontario. Welcome to Consider This. Thank you for having me, Robert. Before we go too far, for listeners who have not heard of the New Blue Party of Ontario, can you give us a quick synopsis of the party and its history? Well, we are a a fairly new party that was formed approximately two years ago by Belinda Carriholius and Jim Carriholius. Um, many know Belinda as the MPP that was um, kicked out of office while she was running under the banner of the Progressive Conservatives under Doug Ford, um, at which point um, both her and Jim decided to start their own Conservative Party, um, which was shortly after um, certified by Elections Ontario. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was sometime in um, 2019. Uh, 2020, and at which point um, they have been working diligently to find candidates for every single riding in Ontario. And um, as a new uh, conservative alternative um, in Ontario, we have constructed a a pretty simplified platform with a number of different points that we call the new blue Ontario blueprint, um, which can be found um, on the uh, website. Um, so we are we are not so much a, a new conservative party in the sense where we're changing what a, what conservative values or principles are. We're reaffirming those those existing historical values and principles as a party that we believe uh, the progressive conservatives have have lost um, over the number over the past few years. That's really interesting. If that's the case then why not make those changes within the context of the Progressive Conservative Party? Why do you feel you need to go outside to achieve that goal? Well, it is a good question, and and I'm I'm going to give you a response to it, but I think that question um, has been answered by Jim Carrey-Holius. There there have been issues within um, the party where they have not been um, overly encouraging... um, their own MPPs to raise alternative uh, perspectives and views within the party. So what's been happening is 
um, at the beginning when Belinda Carriholius decided, you know, she felt that there were some principles or issues that were happening within um, the political sphere of a party, um, her, her views and perspectives were shut down uh, and she was not allowed to voice those opinions. And, and as such, grew the grassroots movement of this new party. So who are the voters that you're targeting then? Are they progressive conservatives that are disenfranchised? Who, who are you aiming for? Uh, predominantly, we are, we're aiming at the, um, the Doug Ford voters who voted for him in the last election that have, been, that have felt left behind, that have felt that their voice has not been heard um, over, the four, over the last four years. Um, we are hoping to reach center voters as well, center to the left voters, and, and giving them uh, another option um, where our blueprint, our, our platform may resonate with them and they may find some common ground uh, where they can feel that this is a viable option for us. Um, their policies and principles resonate and they may in fact wish to vote New Blue Ontario. Before we get into the platform, for those who have never heard of Joshua Shaloub, can you give us a short bio, maybe a bit of your background, please? Sure. Well, I've been a resident of, of Ontario for over 35 years. Uh, I've recently relocated to um, this riding, Northumberland, Peterborough South. Uh, I live in Hastings, Ontario. Prior to that, I have lived in uh, Whitby in Durham Region for almost 30 years. Um, I have uh, a paralegal diploma. I have a four-year Bachelor of Honours in Legal Studies, and I'm currently working at completing my Bachelor of Education at um, Trent University. I've done some um, teaching uh, with individual private schools, um, teaching slash tutoring uh, for, for those that need the extra, the extra help. And obviously with the, with the shutdowns of, of schools, we went to online learning and a lot of students had difficulty um, adjusting to that change, to that different, to that concept of online Zoom um, curriculum. So um, I went out and, and, and I helped those individuals, those students um, hone in their, their, their abilities um, through the online version of schooling. Do you have family? I do have family. I have, uh, I have an older brother and um, my parents are actually in their, their 80s. Um, and so we have, they have their own struggles um, in terms of mobility and, and um, health issues. And so I have uh, taken it upon myself to, to look after them um, during, their, during their, uh, their, their struggles. I, I didn't feel that I wanted to have them placed in a, in a long-term or retirement home. I wanted them to stay here and I wanted to be their, their primary caregiver. How did you get interested in politics? <clears throat> Good question. Um, I have always, um, even, in my, even in my teens and early 20s, 30s, I've always been political. I've always advocated um, for, for the underdog, for those who really don't have a voice um, in our society, those individuals whose voices are not being heard politically. Um, so perhaps if you want to call it activism, um, I don't have a, a formal political background per se, but I've always felt that I had something positive to bring to the table, um, but I never had the opportunity 
to put it in play, um, as it were. And when I was doing a little research during this election, and I realized that um, my values and principles resonated with this new party, New Blue Ontario, I felt there may be a fit for me here. And um, I ran for nomination, and I was obviously successful, and I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to be the voice for, for residents um, within our communities here. I've seen in some of the articles that have covered your candidacy that you've called yourself an activist. Uh, how have you been an activist? I have, well, I have been very, very vocal with um, my MPPs in the past, whether it be liberal, um, conservatives, um, and I would reach out to those MPPs with, with my views and perspectives and, and hopes for some positive change to help those who are perhaps um, disenfranchised um, and, again, where their voices aren't being heard, whether it be something that relates to healthcare, whether it be ODSP, whether it be housing. Um, and I, I felt that, you know, if you, want, if you want change, it has to start with you. And you need to put yourself out there and you need to sort of um, be that change that you want to see in the world. And, and, and that's how I've sort of been um, advocating for issues that I feel passionate about. Let's move on to some of the issues in, in your party's platform. One of the top items on your party's website is the end of all COVID mandates, including the repeal of emergency measures, vaccine passports, etc. Why is this necessary? As I understand it, none of this is in place anymore. Well, in fact, I, I'm going to respectfully slightly disagree with you because as it stands right now, and, and we're talking, I, I'm, I'm speaking to, to federally, um, we do have travel restrictions right now for Canadians who are unvaccinated. They are unable to board um, a plane or a train um, to leave Canada. In fact, um, even interprovincial travel is limited with restrictions um, to vaccinations. And we feel that while our belief that the vac vaccinations are important, I mean, they have been scientifically proven to, to, to work and, and to be a, a, um, a viable method of reducing transmission, transmission of diseases and virus. Um, we do not believe that they should be mandated. We do not believe in dividing and segregating groups within our society. Um, we believe we should be united as one um, and not divide each other. And we should allow the individuals to self-assess their own risks, um, do the right thing for themselves and for, their, and for others within the community. At the same time, allowing them that medical autonomy um, where you know, they can make the decision for themselves whether or not they wish to be vaccinated or not. And I think that's important um, for every Canadian. I understand your points, but you mentioned it was federal and you're running in a provincial election and you're talking about a provincial mandate. And I, I guess that's where I was sort of taking my orientation from. So, uh, again, why why is it so necessary then to uh, to speak out about this and to attack it from a, a, a federal point of view when you're running in a provincial election and, and we're talking about what's going on at the provincial level? Well, we, we need to restore our dignity and transparency in our healthcare, And I think the restrictions that we've seen over the past two and a half years under the, under the Ford government, um, we have seen Doug Ford flip-flop on um, the restrictions. We've seen him flip-flop on closures and reopening. 
um, <clears throat> vaccinations. Doug Ford himself at one point said um, at the onset of the pandemic that he did not um, agree with mandatory vaccinations. He himself said that this was something that was divisive and he did not agree with and he would not implement as Premier of Ontario. But we saw a shift of that several months later where he now changed his, his stand on mandatory vaccinations. And provincially speaking, as you've, as you've alluded to, we have fired healthcare workers who have been working for, for years at the, on the front lines in hospitals, and we've terminated their employment because they've chosen well, to exercise their medical autonomy. I, I appreciate your point, but these, as information come, new information comes forward, science comes forward, um, is it not reasonable that that uh, a, somebody should change their mind as circumstances as circumstances change, and to adapt to an unfolding situation? I, I just wonder, if, from that standpoint of view, is that not a, a good approach to governance? Is that as new information comes forward, as things change, um, you know, you are you are able to change your mind and, and change your positions? Well, science is, science is questioning, science is learning, science is always evolving. So yes. um, this is true. But what I think is happening is the public has only been receiving one side of these evolving um, facts. We have not been given the full picture. So there has been no media coverage on side effects of the vaccination. There have been no media coverage on those individuals who have been vaccinated twice, three times, who have um, had issues with post-vaccination um, trauma, if you want to call it. There have, been, there have been a number of studies that have come out um, that substantiate that the vaccination may in fact cause side effects, but we're not hearing about those. And I think it's unfair that the media would only give us one side of that picture. Well, I, I, I think that the media has given us information that it's been verified and that, that has been backed by by uh, reliable science. And, and so maybe that's what's behind it. I'd, I'd like to move on then now to talk about affordability, because this seems to be a key theme in this election. How would your party make life more affordable for Ontarians? Well, part of our blueprint is growing Ontario's economy. So we would like to grow the economy, but the GDP by 5% annually. Um, we want to reduce electricity prices by improving productivity of how electricity is, is distributed and reaching residents. We would also like to provide um, tax relief by cutting the HST from 13% down to 10%. So a 3% reduction in the provincial HST is something that um, is important to us. And we are passionate about um, removing and axing the Doug Ford carbon tax. I think we've seen the prices of fuel rising to exponential rates at right now, and it's just not sustainable, it's not affordable. And the this government has not provided any real relief for residents at the pumps. It's, it's not good enough to say we're going to, if we're reelected, then we'll drop the, um, the fuel prices by 5.2 or 5.6% or cents rather, um, come July. Uh, Ontarians need relief right now, today, um, not in three months if you're elected. 
All right. Uh, uh, let's talk more about that that part of your platform because um, it states uh, on your website that it will grow by 5% taking down wind turbines and reducing electricity prices and improve productivity. How is removing wind turbines going to make it more affordable to live in Ontario? Well, the wind turbines that were that were that were placed by the previous government, um, we we all know that there's been a number of issues with that with the, with that portfolio. It is hard to. It's very technology is new. It's expensive, um, and we've seen the cost of building these wind turbine farms. the The big issue for me with the wind turbines is that you have to find huge pieces of land in remote areas to build enough of these wind turbines to affect uh, a reduction in, in, in the price of electricity. So when you have to build a land-based site in a remote area, you have to build transmission lines um, to bring the electricity from those wind farms to, to more urban cities. That's expensive, it's costly, um, and it's not something that is going to be able to reduce the hydro rates um, right now. It may affect its itself in six months, 12 months, um, and down the road. And there is a, so apart from that, there's a development of those, of these uh, wind farms is, is expensive, it's costly. And it's also very costly to maintain these wind farms. When, when a turbine goes down, it's expensive to repair and maintain um, these areas that have okay. so many of these turbines. So I understand, I understand you have a, a problem with wind turbines, but we're talking about the Ontario economy and your promise to grow it by 5%. I'm not clear yet on the relationship between doing all this work with the wind turbines and how that's going to help me afford groceries or uh, make other th- parts of the economy generate the 5% growth that you're, you're wanting to achieve. Can you help me make that connection, please? I think we need to see fiscal responsibility and how, the, and how provincial monies is being allocated and transferred. I think we've seen a lot of money millions of dollars that are being transferred to different corporations, to different sectors of, um, of, of the economy that is not per se helping, helping residents right now who are struggling to meet, you know, just paying their, 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 their bills, paying their mortgage, their rent. I think a lot of this is not just uh, um, an issue of wind turbines, but it, it consists of, um, affordable housing. It, affi- it, it, it affects the fuel prices. It affects how we dole out money to large corporations. Are we holding them accountable um, in terms of huge profits and then, and then gifting them um, millions of dollars for things that really they should be paying for themselves? They're a profitable company. It should not be funded by taxpayer subsidies. And when you look at all these different things, um, I think this is something that will help Ontario's economy in the long run. Again, going back to the wind turbines, uh, what is your position of the party uh, when it comes to climate change? Well, I mean, we hear a lot about climate change and we hear a lot about how we're going to deal with climate change. And I think the first thing I want to say is I don't think taxing taxing citizens um, through carbon tax is going to really um, help us with moving forward with protecting protecting environment, protecting the planet. I think taxing us more um, on, on transportation, on fuel, on the cost of um, heating your homes is not something that is working for us. I think we've lost sight of the big picture. I think there are things that we can do 
Um, I know, for example, uh, Doug Ford wants to build the, uh, the Highway 4, one, the 413. Um, we're going through stretches of, of beautiful land um, where I don't think the, the, the need is there. Um, so if you want to tackle you know, parts of climate change and help the environment and help um, nature keep its, um, its, its, its species alive, then we should be looking at different ways of mitigating um, climate change. Uh, but taxation isn't something that um, I believe works right now. Okay. Uh, what, what is your party's platform on the environment and the climate? Well, I think for, for, the, for, for the party itself, I don't believe that we um, truly want to focus um, this election on climate change right now. I think we have other priorities that we believe are more important um, to, to Ontarians than just simply dealing with climate change. Um, but one of the big things is, is removing the carbon tax, um, which we believe is part and part to, to mitigating these issues with climate change. Um, but apart from that, I All don't right. want to comment further on it at this point. Okay. Um, let's move on then to healthcare. Now, this is a major issue identified by our listeners in our election survey. What is your party proposing to improve healthcare in Northumberland, Peterborough South? Well, I think first and foremost, we've seen the issues that are that are um, affecting our hospitals, um, affecting the way we deliver healthcare to residents in this region. Um, historically, rural Ontario has been has been left behind um, in how healthcare is being delivered to them. I think that we need to have more community engagement. We need to partner up with municipalities, perhaps partner up with, with the federal government at some point down the road and find a solution that a patient living in Northumberland County can find a doctor, can find a family physician, can find a walk-in clinic. Um, the demographics out here, the population, we have over 25% of Northumberland County is over the age of 65. And, I, and, and I've, I've read somewhere in stats that we'll be hitting targets about 35% in the next five to seven years where 65 or over will be predominantly um, part of this population. So healthcare is going to be a huge issue for these individuals and, and receiving the proper treatment and resources um, and diagnostic testing is, is paramount to keeping people healthy. We haven't seen that. We need to meet local needs. There is no one size fits all to the issue but we need to be responsive to community needs. So I think we're, we're allocating a lot, of, a lot of funds and a lot of um, energy into the GTA in Toronto in terms of healthcare, but rural Ontario is being left behind and we haven't seen improvements in healthcare. And I'll give you an example. Um, last Christmas Eve, Christmas day, Camelford Memorial Hospital was actually, their emergency doors were actually closed because they lacked sufficient staffing to keep the hospital open. So when you have such a wide a wide landscape um, relative to this riding, you're looking at 35 to 40 kilometers to the next hospital. So when a region's hospital is closed for, for a day, half a day even, um, it may impact, um, it, could be, it could be a life and death impact for, for a patient, perhaps having a heart attack, suffering a heart attack, to be, to be redirected to another hospital 40 kilometers away. So we haven't seen the proper investment in healthcare in Northumberland, Peterborough South. The accessibility in, in, in my view, should be no more than 30 minutes to access services. So a 30 minute drive is, is really 
sort of the maximum where we should be looking at in terms of delivering healthcare. There has been no innovation, no new models of care delivery um, in in this in this region as well. So wait, 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 what about the Ontario Health team though? The Ontario Health team, Northumberland. That that's well, is is that not what you're talking about, or is that something different? Help me understand, please. Well, I, I don't think that we have seen the. Are you talking about sort of what used to be called Lynn? Is that what you're no, referring to? I, I'm talking about the Ontario Health team, Northumberland, the one that that uh, is going around now doing uh, consultations and. They coordinate all the services between all the various healthcare providers. So we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of of these committees and a lot of these organizations talk about improving healthcare, talk about delivering um, reasonable healthcare in a timely fashion. But I think it's it's we need to stop talking and start doing. Because when I go out and I'm campaigning and I'm meeting residents of this riding, I'm hearing the same thing. There's, we can't find a family doctor. We haven't been able to find a family doctor in the last five, six, seven years. Um, the population is growing out here. A lot, of, a lot of residents are moving from the West over to the East. So at what point do we stop talking and do we start affecting some real positive change? So how, how would you bring more doctors to Northumberland? I think we need to find new models of care delivery. We need to find more innovation. And if that means that we need to um, incentivize new doctors coming out to, to, to relocate to rural Ontario, whether it's, that, whether it's paying them more or finding ways to attract doctors to come out and relocate to rural Ontario, to be able to take on new patients. That is something I think what I'm seeing right now broadly in this region is we have a lot of um, uh, online Zoom um, relationships with doctors um, and, and I think part of that is with telehealth as well, whereas you go into a walk-in clinic um, and you're having a Zoom call with the doctor. But there's a lot of things that, that are part of, of, of diagnosing or diagnosing rather issues, medical issues that need to be done one-on-one in person. But we, we, don't, have, we don't have that here in this, in, in this writing. We're not being responsive to the community needs. And the innovation is... One bring in bring in more doctors, fund fund proper um, healthcare initiatives. Uh, we have seen this government provide over one point five million dollars to Campbellford Hospital over the past two years, but we have not seen an improvement in patient delivery. If you go to the emergency department, you're waiting eight, nine, ten hours to be seen, and there's only five or six five or six people actually sitting in an emergency room at that time. The hospital is not running at 100% capacity. The money is being used to, to work on infrastructure. Um, and right now, I know that Campbellford Hospital, for example, is looking to build a new hospital. Um, but my take is, if you can't run the existing hospital efficiently um, and within the proper fiscal constraints, then how will that change when you build a brand new hospital, um, apart from having a brand new building? Uh, you need to prove that you can run this hospital efficiently right now at 100% capacity, deliver the proper medical resources to the residents. Um, for me to say, you know, okay, it's worth the $300 million investment to build a new hospital. What about long-term care? There is a need for an additional 42,000 beds to meet the current demand for long-term care by 2023. Well, there is a shortage. There is a shortage of, of long-term care beds um, for those uh, for seniors who are 
who are at that point where they can no longer fend for themselves. Um, I think, I think something we were looking at um, in the past was a when the previous liberal liberal government started to um, program out these um, home care PSWs and in home care to keep to keep seniors at home longer. Um, we have seen that that failure right now where there's just not enough PSWs to reach all of the individuals that are that are at home who need home care. Um, if we worked on that program itself and we made sure that we had enough PSWs and nurses to be able to service all of the seniors that need in-home care, that is that would take that would alleviate some of the pressure off needing a bed in a long-term care setting. But we do also need to look at building more facilities. Um, and I will personally say that I think one of the failures of um, of this this program itself in terms of long-term care is that we privatized it. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, that was privatized back in the day of, of, of Mike Harris when he privatized long-term care. Um, and we've seen a reduction in accountability. We've seen um, service levels go down. I mean, that was proven during, during the pandemic when we had, um, we had the people going in and assessing the situation. Um, Residents were being left without 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 water, without food, soiled diapers. Um, this was all documented in a number of different um, studies that were done during the pandemic. So we need to hold facilities accountable. We need to increase funding so that we can maintain these long-term care settings, um, in it, so that the individuals who are there are able to live with dignity. Um, and, I, and I think that's what we're missing right now. Um, so it's, it's, yes, we need more long-term care facilities to be able to um, transition those seniors who are going to be moving into that setting. But we also need to make sure that the settings that we have right now um, are, running, are running properly, are running with dignity. They're respecting the, 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 the individuals who are in those homes. Um, but we're not seeing that there. We've taken, we've cut, there's been budget cuts um, across the board for um, inspectors going into different long-term care settings. We're not, we're not being inspected on a yearly basis anymore. And we're leaving them to self-govern themselves, self-inspect themselves. And I think that's part of the problem as well. I'd like to talk about the education policy. Your party wants to reduce administrative costs and introduce alternative schooling tax credits. First, can you explain how you, your party would reduce administrative costs inside of public schools? Reducing administrative costs. Well, I think one of those issues is that we have a lot of money being, being allocated to, to unions. Um, the unions out there have been, have been pulling in a lot of money from the provincial, provincial budgets. Um, that is something that needs to stop. We have uh, perhaps a lot of fat at the top of the educational system. I'm sorry, I don't understand. What do you mean unions are pulling in money uh, from tax? Can you explain that for me, please? I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Well, we've been unions have been taking a lot of a lot of money from from provincial governments. Um, I have uh, there was there was the Liberal government that provided upwards to 80 million dollars to a number of different teacher unions. Um, to appease them during negotiations of contracts. Um, this money would be better spent towards 
educating um, resources for students themselves as opposed to handing over this money to unions for political reasons. So that is something that needs to, needs to be addressed. Um, we need to make sure that students have the resources and, 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 and proper um, skills when they're coming out of schools. And in order to do that, we, bet we need to make sure that um, we transfer those funds where it's needed as opposed to a bureaucracy uh, across the board through education. Uh, yeah, I'm still confused about the. You, wasn't that wasn't that part of salary negotiations between the province and and the teachers unions, and that was part of the settlement? Is that what we're talking about? Well, teacher unions have never been happy, really, with any government that's been in power. Um, they're always they've always been saying that they don't have they're not paid enough. They're not they're not the contracts aren't fair. Um, so we see a lot of money being transferred over to to unions and to pay, but we're not seeing we're not seeing the the money being directly impacting students. Right. So, so I, I, I want to see money going towards education and, and having students come out with a good education all right. as opposed to feeding unions and, and those at the top. All right. So we're talking about negotiations between the, the public sector unions at schools and the government and those settlements. And you want to see those monies spent more on the students and the outcomes. I do. I want to see a, okay. a, a fairer, right. a fairer um, exchange when it comes to contract negotiations right. with teacher unions. Good. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate that. Can you explain how the school tax credits would work? The school tax credits. Well, I think we, 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 we would prefer to provide parents a tax credit and let the parents decide um, where those children, where their children would be best suited, whether it's public schools, Catholic schools. Right now we're, we're spending a lot of money on Catholic, on, on Catholic schools, we're spending money on public schooling. And there seems to be a disconnect between, between, between the two. If we remove that and we allow parents to make, to make the decision and provided them with a, a tax credit rather than providing that money to the brass, then parents have the, the ability to make sound decisions based on the needs of their children and their beliefs and values and principles where they want to send their children um, as opposed to having the government tell you, here's where your child is going to be. It's in your party's education policy that it wants to stop the, quote, woke activism and the removal of critical race theory and gender identity theory from schools. Okay. Can you explain what that all means? Well, this is a, it's a contentious, it's a contentious issue. Um, and we have, we've heard from, from a number of different parties who have been advocating for critical race theory to be taught um, JK to grade three. Um, which encompasses um, a lot of a lot of um, technical sexual issues. It also relates to how we view um, "quote unquote" white privilege and and racism, um, and it's being taught in a way where almost these some of the white students, white children, are feeling as if they are now part of the problem. Um, so in a way, it's almost it's 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 anti-racism at this point. I think. The critical race theory and, 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 and the theories behind it and, and the way it's being taught needs to be held off for a while. I don't think we should be teaching these young kids um, this. I think we should let kids be kids, let them interact with one another. Let's stop dividing children based on their skin color. Um, let's stop dividing children based on um, sexuality or how they view sexuality. Um, this is something that should be left up to the parents to decide 
um, at what point should their children be taught this or be informed about this. But teaching these children at JK to grade three levels, uh, I think is personally is, is too early and, and is not productive. I think it's, it's, it's something that the parents should be um, questioning and, and, and making that decision as to when they will, they best, they feel best to implement these, these changes or these, these thoughts into, into children. I think we're, we're, we're doing a little too early and we're not, and we're forcing, we're not allowing parents to the option. So, so is it just, is your, is your party's position just in the early grades or is it, is it not to teach critical race theory or gender identity um, uh, throughout the education system? Well, the party's the party stand is yes, it would be across the board. It wouldn't just be from JK to grade three. Um, I personally feel that it's something that um, is being taught too early. But as a as a as a party um, principle, we want we want critical race theory removed. We want gender identity removed from all from all grades. It's something that um, should be left up to to the parents to decide um, if and when this is this is taught to their children. It's not something that we should have the educational system impose upon parents. And children. Your party's principles say liberty is best promoted through the ability of individuals to make decisions in their own best interests, encouraging free will, including freedom of speech, worship, assembly, association, political participation, consciousness, religion. So while recognizing the responsibilities that accompany all those rights, then aren't you taking away people's right to learn about different perspectives and different uh, uh, genders and, and those kinds of things in the public school system, um, aren't you limiting the freedoms rather than encouraging them? I'm not sure how you've come to that, to, to, to that, to that statement, really. Perhaps you might want to clarify to me a bit. Uh, I, just, I just wonder to, to what extent, like, to, to what end does it serve? I mean, critical race theory helps us better understand the different perspectives of history. Is it not um, the role, some might say it's the role of, of uh, education to provide different perspectives of, of history and the events of history? Why is that such a, uh, uh, something we shouldn't, we shouldn't be learning in public school? Well, maybe because it's become a biased, it's be, a biased um way of teaching it. It's, it's become something that is one-sided and I don't think that it's being taught holistically. I think we're being, children are being, are being told now, and, and I can attest to this of having been a mature student at a university where um, CRT and white privilege is something that's being taught in university classes where someone without, someone who, who believes otherwise is being told that you're not actually correct in your assumption. So I was, I, was, I was clearly told that because I did not believe in the perspective of white privilege, that I was in some way um, part of the problem and I was some way um, condoning um, racism um, and, and which, which isn't the case. So I think it's, it's being taught in a, in a very narrow-minded lens um, and it's short-sighted. I think that it needs to be, if you wanna teach perspectives of, of any issue really, it should be taught in a more holistic manner and a more fairer manner and an unbiased, unprejudiced fashion. But to tell, to tell one side of the story and, and if you question it or if you feel that you know, it's something that doesn't resonate with you, to be ostracized and, and 
scolded for it, um, I think there's a problem with that. Let's talk about minimum wage. Other parties are promising to raise the minimum wage. What is your party going to do to help people who are at the lower end of the economic scale? I think minimum wage, you know, we can raise minimum wage to $20 an hour. Uh, we can raise it to $25 an hour. Is that truly going to help those individuals living on minimum wage? I think the bigger picture is making life more affordable for every, for every resident in this province. I think when you have, when you have uh, goods and services um, come down in price, when you have inflation reduced, when you have more jobs available, when you have better education resources, better, better um, availability to, to go back to school as a mature student and perhaps get the skills and training that, you, that will empower you to find a higher paying job. I don't know whether or not raising minimum wage is, is the biggest issue. We've seen everything rise over the past few, um, few years, the price of pricing goods and service and, and the price of housing, the price of rental. So at $20 an hour, um, I'm not sure that, that a single person or, or, or you know, a family of you know, both working at minimum wage can, can afford to sustain themselves, even at $20 an hour. So I'm not sure how that's going to help really in the long term. It might be a quick fix right now, and it might be a feel-good a feel good um, notion that here, you know, we're helping individuals. Um, but I think, I don't think that's the answer. I think we need to find better ways to, to lift up people, to empower them, to give them more options and to allow them to better themselves and find perhaps better employment. There's a, there's a lack of, there's a lack of full-time permanent work out there. Um, if you, if you, you drive around, you're going to see for, you know, we're looking to hire, we're looking for staff, but I think a lot of that is, is part-time minimum wage jobs, retail positions that come and go quite often. Um, and, and for someone who's starting out, you know, building a family, wanting to buy a house, a minimum wage job isn't going to be able to sustain you, um, even at 20 bucks an hour. I know that, you know, the parties have been talking about um, bringing it up to 15.50. Some have said we'll bring it up to, to 20 um, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not working. I mean, it hasn't worked, you know, trickle down economics doesn't typically work in, in my, in my perspective. I think we need to find ways to deal with the rising costs, um, so that people have a way to be able to put food on the table, pay their hydro, everything has gone up. Um, and we've had, we've seen failed policies. So I don't know that minimum wage is the is raising minimum wage is truly the answer to fixing all of the problems in terms of affordability. Joshua, we live in a time of very divisive politics, and there's a lot of negativity we see in the legislature. We watch attack ads, and some people may wonder whatever happened to civility in politics. Can you name one policy or one idea put forward by the Conservative Party, the Progressive Conservative Party, or any other party that you would support? A conservative policy that I would support. Um, we're talking Doug Ford, obviously. Um, to be honest with you, you know, there may be some policies that he's brought forward that seem like <clears throat> they are, they're, they're good ideas and there might be, there might be some positive um, results from it. But I, I can't honestly say that I would support any one of his policies 
um, fully to say that I'm, I'm 100% in support of that policy. I, I can't honestly say that in good conscience. I would probably, I would probably see um, or find perhaps uh, an NDP or a liberal policy that I would, I would support more, to be honest with you, than I would the Conservative Party. Can you give, can you give me one? I can give you one. And I think um, I've been an advocate for, for raising the ODSP, ODSP levels. I think that's something that is is truly um, heartbreaking that we have disabled Canadians, disabled Ontarians living on eleven hundred and sixty nine dollars a month. Um, that's that's way below poverty. And I know that um, for I know that the NDP and Liberals have have in part said that we should raise these levels. But even then, I don't even think that they have really hit the target, um, raising it to $1,500 or $1,400 still doesn't cut it. Um, when Justin Trudeau said, you know, we're locking down the country, we're, we're shutting down, we're going to offer every Canadian $2,000 in CERB, then it must be, you know, there must have been some calculation, some thought, some thought process that said, you know, in order to be able to make ends meet, you know, at a bare minimum, $2,000 is what each Canadian is going to need at this point. So 1169 to live on ODSP um, is shameful that, that we are allowing these individuals, you know, no money to pay rent, no money to further themselves, not enough money to pay food. A lot of these people on ODSP barely have a couple hundred bucks at the end of the month to buy groceries. And we've seen the price of groceries go up. So, um, you know, Doug Ford has said he, he wants to increase um, ODSP by 5% over the next over the next um, number of years, that isn't that isn't going to tackle the issue. That isn't anywhere near. Um, if I was elected MPP and I was advocating for ODSP recipients, it's it's not something that I would that I would support. I think we need to do better and to do more for those who are on ODSP. So that's one of the one of the issues that um, you know I would have supported. You know, at least partially, um, if brought if brought if brought by a, a, a more leftist uh, political party in Ontario. To finish, tell me one thing you are passionate about, a hobby or a guilty pleasure or an activity that has nothing to do with politics. Well, I, I really enjoy, I had mentioned to you earlier that I had just moved to, to Hastings from Whitby. And part of that reason was because I wanted to be more outdoors. I wanted to have sort of more of that quiet, serene life, um, you know, where there's, there isn't the traffic, there isn't the hustle and bustle. And so for me, being one with nature is something that I'm passionate about. I love being able to go out, you know, at, in, the, in the late evenings and take the dog for a walk and, and, and be at peace with nature. And I, I'm very passionate about making sure that communities have enough green space to be able to, to unwind um, and, and, and be, feel more peaceful, more at ease. And I think it's, 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 it's good for the soul. It's good for the body. It's good for mental health. And, and so that's something that I, I'm really passionate about. Um, making sure that we take that time to enjoy our surroundings um, and our green space and nature um, as a whole. I think it's important. Running for office takes a lot of energy and effort. Does your wife or kids do, are they supportive of, of all of this incredible energy and time you're sinking into uh, to running for, uh, for the party? Well, um, I am actually single. So, so I, I'm not, uh, I'm not coupled. Um, so my time has been 
my time running during this campaign has taken away from, from, from my parents, to be honest with you. So it's something that they have been very supportive of um, and they've encouraged. And, you know, we've had to do with a little less lately in terms of my supporting them and being here for them. But they understand that I'm passionate about um, getting into politics. They're passionate about, um, you know, me finding a way to, to affect some positive change. Do I, do I have all the answers? Absolutely not. I'm not a career politician. You know, some of the questions that you asked me, you know, would probably have been answered in a more politically professional manner. Um, if you're asking a political politician who's had, you know, five, 10, 15 years experience in, in politics for as someone who has just stepped into this arena, um, there is much to learn. Um, there is much to, to figure out. And while perhaps my answers to questions, whether it's, you know, doing this interview or, uh, or speaking to, to, to voters out there may not always strike the right note. Um, I think more importantly is the, is the willingness to put yourself out there, um, to be debated, um, to learn and to be part of that, to be part of that conversation and engage, engage voters um, because they learn and I learn uh, at the same time. So, you know, there may be people that will tune in and listen to um, some of my interviews or, or read some of the newspaper articles that have been written and say, well, I, I don't know about this guy. He doesn't seem to have all the answers or, you know, he kind of strayed away from this particular point. But what I want voters to understand is I'm not a career politician. I don't want to be a career, a career politician. I want to be someone that is going to be there for them, that's going to be their voice at Queen's Park, that is going to hear their, their, their struggles, their issues, and I'm going to fight for them in Queen's Park. Um, so I don't believe that it, what we're seeing right now is working. I think people are feeling, I mean, the fact that we're so divided in this province right now, the fact that we have so many political parties um, popping up, I think is a clear indication that there are people that are unhappy with the status quo. There are people that are unhappy that, you know, these established political parties have had X number of years in power, but they haven't, they haven't done what they've promised. Um, and so, you know, people have, have asked me, why should I vote for you? You're, you know, why should I vote for your party? You know, you have no track record. You have no history. You have no experience. Um, and, and so my response to that is you've had parties You've had candidates that have come up and, and they're articulate, they speak well, they answer the questions head on, but when they're elected, they fail the constituents. They break promises and they fail to be their voice. When, when I said to you that I, I, I really enjoy, or I've been advocating um, for, for people, um, you know, perhaps involve myself in a bit of activism. When I reach out to my MPPs, and I, and, I, and, I, and I email them and I phone them and I say, this is something that's important to me. This is something that I feel passionate about. And I would really in, enjoy hearing back from you, uh, a, a, an email, a phone call, something back. And I don't get a response back from those MPPs. Then I feel that my issues are falling upon deaf ears. They don't care about the voter. And for me, I want to I be different. I want to be that change. I want to be that individual who's at Queen's Park who's accessible. If a voter reaches out to me and says, Joshua, I've got a problem um, or I have an issue with something, 
I want to be there for them and I want to, and I want to be able to address that concern, whether it's through a constituency office or whether it's at Queen's Park on a, on a, on a larger platform. Joshua Shalhoub, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. That was Joshua Shalhoub, candidate for the New Blue Party. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.